You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In this final lecture, uh, I want to uh, compare uh, Newman and Kierkegaard, and in doing this, I will be adding more to what I have to say about the two men. But one of the things I want to talk about here is the way in which both of them are in agreement in their opposition to what Newman calls liberalism. He defined that earlier as the anti-dogmatic principle, and we might think that that doesn't quite match what we've seen about Kierkegaard, but I would say mutatis mutandis, that this opposition to liberalism is present in Newman as well, if we understand it to mean the reduction of the Christian faith to simple philosophical truths, the confusion of Christ the teacher with the human teacher with Socrates and so forth. That kind of reductionism in religion might come as a version of liberalism, and in that sense, we could say that Kierkegaard is opposed to it. I wouldn't go to the wall for that, because what I really want to talk about is what Newman means by liberalism and his opposition to it. We've had occasion to cite the passage in the Apologia in which he refers to liberalism and his opposition to it, and again says it's the anti-dogmatic principle. But what we have in the Appendix A of the Apologia is a extended discussion of liberalism, which is meant to underwrite what he said there rather briefly in the text itself. And it is a remarkable passage. It's an article unto itself. He knows that there are certain Catholics who are called liberals, and he doesn't have in mind Montalembert and Father Lacordaire, he says. What he has in mind is the liberalism as he will define it in this appendix, and that's what we want to turn to. He says, if I hesitate to adopt their language, about liberalism, I impute the necessity of such hesitation to some differences between us in the use of words or the circumstances of country. What I meant as a Protestant by liberalism is what he's going to set forth here. Notice how, in retrospect, Newman just refers to himself as a Protestant. What does he mean in more detail by liberalism as it affected its own life? This is the apologia. We don't expect a kind of abstract disposition on liberalism, certainly not at the beginning. He tells us more about his life at Oxford and at the University of Oxford, the Oriel College, where he became a fellow. And there he was brought into a company with some very knowledgeable people, sophisticated one, who considered themselves that way as not like the rest of men. They were Oxford dons, but they were the elite of the place, and they looked down upon the majority of colleges. Thus was formed an intellectual circle or class in the university. Men who felt they had a career before them, as many of them did, as soon as the pupils whom they were forming came into public life. Men whom non-residents, whether country parsons or preachers of the low church, on coming up from time to time to the old place, would look at, partly with admiration, partly with suspicion. Now what Newman is seeing in this group that he became a member of at Oriel College was what he calls the pride of reason. 
And remember those stanzas from Lead Kindly Light that I read in an earlier lecture. It seems to pick up the same self-accusation on Newman's part of his earlier views. Liberty of thought is in itself a good, Newman notes, but it gives an opening to false liberty. Now by liberalism, I mean false liberty of thought or the exercise of thought upon matters in which from the constitution of the human mind, thought cannot be brought to any successful issue and therefore is out of place. What are such things? that are not to be turned on by thought or it would be false liberty on our part to subject them to analysis or critique. Among such matters, Newman says, are first principles of whatever kind. And of these, the most sacred and momentous are especially to be reckoned the truths of revelation. First principles, starting point. Starting points in the natural order. Doubtless, Newman, as an Aristotelian, would have in mind the principle of contradiction, that a thing cannot be and not be at the same time and in the same respect. Of course, philosophers are going to talk about that, but some philosophers have sought to deny it, as Protagoras did, and this is false liberty of thought. It's an abuse of liberty. It's not using my, the mind freely to think of something that is true. It's using the mind in order to deny what cannot be denied. Even the denial pays deference to what seemingly is denied. But added to that, and not without significance, for Newman are the truths of revelation. These are not to be subjected to kind of rational scrutiny or skepticism of the kind that he felt was indeed in play in many places. Liberalism then is the mistake of subjecting to human judgment those reveal doctrines which are in their nature beyond and independent of it, and of claiming to determine on intrinsic grounds the truth and value of propositions which rest for the reception simply on the external authority of the divine word. One could certainly find a parallel to that kind of statement in Kierkegaard. But here we have the notion that liberalism is what attending to the truths of revelation as if they were any other kind of claim and are to be analyzed in the way in which any other kind of claim is analyzed. One thinks of Paul's epistle to the Colossians, beware lest anyone lead you astray through philosophy. And this is what false philosophy, this is taking reason to stand in judgment on revelation. That is what Newman means by liberalism, and he is adamantly opposed to it. Now he says his friends that he mentioned here in Oriel College would of course be alarmed to think that he was accusing them of this sort of thing, but he's talking about what the tendencies were. And here we have in this introductory portion of the note on liberalism, we have another reference to Keeble, which reveals the deep reverence and affection that Newman felt for this friend from whom he was estranged by his conversion. Keeble did not become a Catholic. Keeble, who was the sort of phones at Origo of the Oxford movement, remained within the Anglican Church. But this great encomium of Keeble in the note on liberalism. Keeble was a man who guided himself informed his judgments not by processes of reason, by inquiry, or by argument, but to use the word in a broad sense, by authority, 
conscience is an authority. The Bible is an authority. Such is the church, such is antiquity, such are the words of the wise, such are hereditary lessons, such are ethical truths, such are historical memories, such are legal saws and state maxims, such are proverbs, such are sentiments, presages, and prepositions. If one were going to define what is meant by a traditionalist, this would be an excellent definition. And you can see how opposed it was to a certain philosophical current that assumed that the task of the mind was to call into question all of these things which were authoritative for Keeble and we can see for Newman as well. Nor do we have to just infer this kind of contrast. Newman makes it clear when he describes Keeble in this way. He even felt a tenderness, I think, in spite of Bacon, for the idols of the tribe and the den, of the marker and the theater. What he hated instinctively was heresy, insubordination, resistance to things established, claims of independence, disloyalty, innovation, a critical censorious spirit. You couldn't ask for a stronger contrast between a mind which is embedded in a tradition, which is moving in an ambiance which it has acquired by upbringing and so forth, by religious faith, on the one hand, and accepting attitude towards these things, not wholly uncritical, but basically accepting of them and assuming that what is time-honored must have something to be honored in it, not simply by pastime, but by the present time. This goes utterly contrary to the kind of bumptiousness of a certain kind of modern philosophy, whereby the isolated mind is, so to speak, elevated into the role of judge of everything that comes before it. Religion, ordinary experience, the experience of the race, and so forth. And doubtless you would have people who would be pure instances of the one and pure instances of the other. Most people, I suspect, would be somewhere in between a via media, but they would be tending to the one side or the other. But to tend towards that utter skepticism, that universal doubt, that de omnibus dubitandum est stance would be for Newman not only to be unlike Keeble, but to be unlike what a human being ought to be. What then does Newman give us after this kind of introductory matter as the content of liberalism? He actually gives us in this note 18 propositions. It's almost like a papal document. These are 18 propositions that sum up liberalism, which he is rejecting. No religious tenet is important unless reason shows it to be so. No one can believe what he does not understand. No theological doctrine is anything more than an opinion which happens to be held by bodies of men. It is dishonest in a man to make an act of faith in what he has not had brought home to him by actual proof. It is immoral in a man to believe more than he can spontaneously receive as being congenial to his moral and mental nature. You get the picture. I mean, if there's ever a summary of doctrines which would indicate the countercultural attitude of John Henry Newman with respect to his time, this document on liberalism would make it clear. And it's reminiscent, of course, of things of Pope Pius IX and later of St. Pope Pius X in his condemnation of modernism. Liberalism and modernism here could be almost 
synonym. We can compare Cardinal Newman and Soren Kierkegaard, I think justly enough, by saying they're two subjective thinkers, but with the caveats and qualifications that I've been mentioning over the course of these lectures. And I would like now to return to a point that I've made earlier to expand on what I mean by calling the two of them subjective thinkers. First of all, the point about the analogy between the ethical and the religious. I've mentioned that before. And I want now to spell that out in a way that would indicate the kind of subjectivism or subjectivity that I think we can attribute to Newman and to Kierkegaard and the way in which in understanding it as I'm proposing, some of the misgivings that we might have about what they say may very well disappear. You'll remember that when we were talking about Kierkegaard and referred to the discussion of subjectivity is the truth in the concluding unscientific postscript, the philosophical fragment, we cited any number of times that definition of faith that Climacus offers there as an objective uncertainty held fast in an appropriation process of the most passionate inwardness. That is the truth, that is the faith. That is what faith is, according to Kierkegaard. Now, what I want to note here is that has always struck people as, well, wishing will make it so. All you have to do is get your emotions sufficiently geared up, and you can give your assent to any proposition, however uncertain or unlikely it might have seemed at the outset. It's just a matter of wearing down your resistance to it by whatever means or devices would occur to you, the most passionate inwardness in Climacus's phrase. In this way, the passage and discussion has been ridiculed by critics. Well, I suggest that we make note of this fact, that in the course of discussing subjectivity is the truth, Kierkegaard makes a very important reference to Aristotle. And it's a reference to Book 3, Chapter 10 of the De Anima of Aristotle, the work On the Soul, and to a text which is the Locus Classicus for the distinction between theoretical reason on the one hand and practical reason on the other. And this distinction is invoked to make it clear, it seems to me, that what Climacus is talking about is practical reason. And given that, it's important to note what he has to say, or how he uses, rather, the analogy between the ethical and the religious Christian faith. We've alluded to this before, but the question arises as to how is practical reason true? Now, in theoretical reason, we talked about this when we led up to the discussion of subjectivity as the truth some time ago, but when we ask ourselves how it is that theoretical reasoning is true, we would say, those of us who are well-ordered, that a proposition is true if and only if it matches what it is about. So that snow is white, the proposition is true because snow is white. But that's theoretical thinking, theoretical proposition. That's what the sciences are like, we might say. But what is practical reason? Practical reason is not just getting our minds right about a certain thing. It's meant to direct us in action to a particular end, which is a good. So practical reason will reach its term. It will be achieved not in thinking, but in the action which it guides. So while we might talk about the truth or falsity of certain theoretical or common or general guidelines or principles in the moral order, the truth that we want is the truth of action. That is that our acts, our deeds are 
true to the principles that we are seeking to apply. And what the student of Aristotle will realize is that that kind of discourse, that kind of discourse, practical discourse, which issues in a particular choice or decision, will be successful to the degree that our appetite is ordered to the good which is expressed in the principle we're trying to apply. So that if we're trying to apply a principle having to do with temperance, we're only going to successfully apply that to the here and now insofar as the good of temperance is something we want. Huh? And that means the want has to be an established one. Unless we have the virtue of temperance, we're not going to be able to make judgments that will issue in temperate action. There's some modification to that, but generally that's the point. There is a subjective condition, a subjective appetitive prerequisite for successfully bringing off practical reasoning in its term, which is this action. Huh? And when you look at Kierkegaard's definition of subjective truth, it begins to dawn on you, if you recall this passage, which he has referred us to, what he is really up to, huh? what he can be said to be up to. Now, something very similar occurs in Cardinal Newman. In a work of his to which we've only alluded, there'll be a lot more about it in the accompanying lessons to these lectures. But in the Grammar of Ascent, there is a discussion of what Newman calls the illative sense. And of course, illative is a term, Latin derivation, that comes from the same root as inference. Huh? And by calling it the illative sense, he also talks about inference, Newman is clearly setting it off in a certain way and wanting to speak of it in a way that would be peculiar to his efforts in this work. All of the discussions of the grammar of ascent are aimed at and reach their culmination in applications to religious knowledge or religious ascent. That's what he's really up to throughout. He's not just writing an abstract treatise on epistemology, on modes of ascent for the fun of it, or just for the variety of it. He is after a way of talking about religious belief. Now, the illative sense, so it's chapter nine of part two of the essay in aid of a grammar of ascent. And he says, I have already said that the sole and final judgment on the validity of an inference in concrete matter is committed to the personal action of the ratiocinative faculty, the perfection or virtue of which I have called the illative sense. The illative sense is a virtue, and it is a virtue which enables the ratiocinative faculty in judgments in concrete matter to operate successfully. This is not an unintended sort of analogy. What do we find when we turn to this edition by Nicholas Lash, published by the University of Notre Dame Press, to page 277? We find mirabile dictu, a reference to Aristotle. This time, not the reference that Kierkegaard gave to the distinction between this theoretical and practical from the De Anima. This has to do with the virtue, the discussion of the virtue of phronesis, or prudence, in Book 6 of the Nicopian Ethics of Aristotle. And what we find here in a note, Newman's note to page 277, is the identification of what he calls the illative sense with what Aristotle calls phronesis and what the Latins call prudentia, 
or practical wisdom. Though Aristotle, Newman writes, in his Nicomachean Ethics speaks of phronesis. Now notice, this is the great move. Though Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics speaks of phronesis as the virtue of the doxastikon, the ratiocinative, generally, and as being concerned generally with contingent matter, or what I have called the concrete, and of its function being as regard that matter to be true or false in the judgment about those concrete matters, he does not treat of it in that work in its general relation to truth and the affirmation of truth, but only as it bears on ta prakta, on practical matter, on what Newman calls the concrete. What does that tell us? What Newman wants to do is to take that virtue which Aristotle called phronesis, what Thomas will call prudentia, which is a virtue of practical reason having to do with concrete decision, and Newman wants to universalize it over theoretical and practical thinking. That's the astounding thing about the discussion of the illative sense, it seems to me, in Newman. And the Aristotelian would say, you can't do that, because how are you going to say You'd have to say something like this in order to generalize it. Unless your heart is in the right place, you can't do geometry. Huh? Well, Newman is willing to take that on. And in taking it on, I think he draws our attention to something that is absolutely at the base, not only of his Oxford University sermon and of the Apologia Pro Vita Sua, but you might say it just permeates his thinking throughout. And that is, he knows, of course, that there's a difference between theoretical thinking and practical thinking. Practical thinking is involved with the concrete. It's the realization of a good which is expressed in a practical principle. How is it that one can apply that, say, to doing geometry? What Newman is forcing us to see here in a way which perhaps we are disinclined to see is this, that doing geometry is a human act. Employing theoretical intellect is a human act. And as such, it comes within the ambit of the practical. It's not that the content of thinking is not theoretical and the truths are not, if true, true a theoretical truth, but my engagement in them, my engagement in that activity is one that comes under, comes under a moral assessment as well as the assessment of whether or not I'm doing, let's say, biology well or badly, obeying the canons, the theoretical canons, we might say, of biological inquiry. But is it right for me, morally right for me, to be engaged in biology here and now, given the circumstances of my life, whether I do it well or badly in the narrow biological sense? Newman, we might say, is calling our attention to that intellectual fact about human behavior, that whether we are using our minds theoretically or practically, there is a practical ambience within which this takes place. And while that might seem to subjectify everything, I don't think it does, but that it has a very peculiar and definite relationship to the discussion of faith is something that emerges from noting St. Thomas Aquinas' analysis of the act of divine faith. 
This generalization on Cardinal Newman's part of the notion of violative sense or the notion of prudence, as I say, might initially surprise us because it seems to make all judgments, whether theoretical or practical, intrinsically dependent on rectitude of appetite, as St. Thomas would call it, on our heart being in the right place, on our appetites being governed by virtue. Now, there are, of course, theoretical virtues. Biology, which I mentioned, that would be a science, and that counts as a virtue, that is a perfection of the mind that one either has or doesn't. He acquires it. If one is a biologist, he's able to carry on that kind of activity. We expect him to be able to come up with certain results and the like. But notice the way I put it. We say he has that ability, he has that capacity. Having such a capacity does not, as such, make one willing to use it. I mean, that's a further step. If I am a biologist, my decision to use this capacity at a given point, let's say from eight to five, and to engage in, that's a choice that I make. That's a moral decision that I make. So that, as Thomas will put it, virtues like that, theoretical virtues, give us the capacity, but not the will to use the capacity. Whereas moral virtues, which reside in appetite, justice, or temperance, or fortitude, they bend the appetite in a certain way. They school the appetite in a certain way. So that to have those virtues is to be disposed appetitively to act in accord with them. So given that difference, I mean, we could say, sure, the intellectual virtues give us the capacity, but not the will. The moral virtues give us both the capacity and the will to do them, unless the use of the capacity of the intellectual virtue is a moral judgment, a moral act. So it comes within the ambience, we might say, of the illative sense in the Aristotelian meaning of the term. That may not be enough to reconcile ourselves with this generalization on the part of Cardinal Newman, his generalization of the illative sense, because he tends to want to make the intrinsic moves within a theoretical discipline depend upon an appetitive or subjective disposition. And some of his examples are more persuasive than others. But as a general principle, I think the strict Aristotelian would say that won't work except in the way in which I've already indicated it, and that is that engagement in theoretical sciences is something that a human being does, and his doing of it is subject to moral appraisal, but what he does is subject to the appraisal of success or failure in that science. An obvious kind of point. So there is a sense in which we could ironically agree with Newman, but as I say, that might not be to go as far as he himself wants to go. Its application, however, to faith is one that would seem to be relatively easy. It was St. Augustine who said that nemo credit nisi volens, no one believes except he be willing. And what moves the will or the mind to ascend to the mysteries of faith, the truths that are presented to us, is that we see them as good and the will is drawn to them and leads the intellect to assent to what the intellect cannot understand. But what is the aegis under which we believe the truths of Christianity? Believe these things and you will live. Huh? There is a promise of happiness, of future beatitude, of union with God beyond this life, which is the motivation for the ascent of the intellect to mysteries which in this life it cannot comprehend, it cannot exhaust in terms of their intelligibility. That is the sense that Thomas gives and others have given to, and I think Augustine himself gives to his little phrase, nemo credit nisi volens. 
In the case of faith, the will has to be moved by grace in order for us to give the assent of faith. So in the instance that interests Newman and Kierkegaard the most, it can be argued that their emphasis on subjectivity, that is the instance that interests them the most is religious faith, their emphasis on subjectivity is well taken, understood, of course, as I've just suggested it. So in that sense, we might say, and I developed this, I might say, a little shameless self-advertisement. In my Gifford lectures, Characters in Search of Their Author, I used references to Kierkegaard and Newman throughout, and in a particular passage of that memorable book, I talked about their pleas for subjectivity and gave a somewhat similar justification of it. Whether it would in every way satisfy either Kierkegaard or Newman, I think is probably doubtful, but it is a way of benefiting from what they have to say and perhaps avoiding some of the difficulties of their teaching as well. If we had to contrast, so we can liken them by saying they're two subjective thinkers on the one hand and earlier that they're both agreed in opposing a kind of liberalism or anti-dogmatic or dumbing down of the content of Christianity. These would be similarities between the two men. A contrast that we've mentioned earlier and to which we must now return is to be found in their understanding of what the church is, the ecclesia, the assembly of believers. There is in Kierkegaard, undeniably, I think, an accent, an emphasis on the isolated individual believer. And it's as if there's no essential connection between him and any believers of past time or of the present time. And indeed, in the discussion of faith as contemporaneity with Christ that we find in the philosophical fragments, that is the point of it. There's really no disadvantage in being a member of the 19th century of Christianity or being in the first. There are advantages and disadvantages, but there's no continuity in that argument that would suggest that the history of the church has any relevance to what one as a Christian believes. As a matter of fact, explicit statements about the concept of church in Kierkegaard tend to be increasingly negative. But one could say, as I just did, that this is sort of the isolated individual or the autonomous individual view of the Christian believer. And that is something very different from what we find in Cardinal Newman. I mentioned that he would take quite seriously that article of the Nicene Creed that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. I mean, an object of one's belief as a believer is the church, the community to which one belongs, into which one is baptized. So many of the things that for Newman would tend to underscore the notion of a community of believers, such as the sacrament of baptism, the Eucharist, and so forth, only glancingly seem to have that effect on Kierkegaard. And increasingly, he isolates himself from the church. It's as if there's something that would sap faith of its meaning if it had any relationship to the beliefs and faith of other people. It's as if then you would be trying to rely on those other people. Well, again, scriptural things come to mind. The role of preaching in the faith, ex fide auditu, as St. Paul says, faith comes from hearing. If the faith is not preached, somebody's got to preach it. It's hard to know how the faith is going to be transmitted. That would seem to establish a relationship between the preacher and the hearer. But Kierkegaard, I think, would be inclined to say, ah, don't wait now. You don't want to say that the preacher is the cause of the faith. 
In the believer, he is the occasion of the faith. Say, okay, but he is the instrument that God uses to pass on the faith. Just as with the sacraments, there's this continuing flow of the salvific act of Christ through time, through the church that he founded and in the means that he gave to that church for carrying on this enormous task. This is what Newman is brooding about all his life. He wants to make sure he's in that church because that's where salvation is to be found, not isolated from it, not just me and God and so forth, but part of the people of God. He's got this great sense of ecclesial community. We might see as guiding him through the various stages of his religious development as depicted in the Apologia Pro Vita Sua. With Kierkegaard, the direction is the opposite. I mean, it's continuing isolation until we get that portrait that I think I've given already of the end of Kierkegaard, how he ended as isolating himself, denying the consolations of religion, seemingly seeing this as a temptation rather than an aid. Again, a very different kind of attitude from Cardinal Newman's. And if we were going to revisit the subjectivity or the subjectivism involved in the two men's thought, doubtless this would be a way in which we begin to see a pretty dramatic differences between them on this particular store. Because in the Apologia, as we've been insisting, there is this interweaving of the abstract and the concrete, of the theoretical and the practical, of the objective and the subjective. And the one that is decisive, of course, is the personal, the existential, we might say the subjective. That's the similarity, certainly between Newman and Kierkegaard, where the dissimilarity occurs is the necessary role that objective arguments play in this existential movement. We saw how the recognition or the sudden perception of the position of the Anglican Church with respect to the Monophysite heresy, the Arian controversy, and so forth, shook Newman. Shook Newman. But this was on a kind of theoretical level. It didn't lead immediately to any kind of judgment. But the judgment that he made could not possibly be divorced from recognitions of that theoretical kind. Without those, it would simply be whimsical or subjective in the sense of private, incommunicable, and don't ask. Huh? What it is is the putting together of certain recognitions on a level of universality and the changing of one's life in the light of that change of mind that had preceded it. Well, I hope these lectures have given you some sense, impressionistic though it be, of the religious thought of Soren Kierkegaard on the one hand and John Henry Newman on the other. You can see that while in speaking of them I've alluded to certain philosophical aspects of their thought and the influence, negative and positive, of philosophers on them, they're inescapably theological in their interests. I've not said enough about Newman's contrast between natural religion and revealed religion, which is a very prominent and recurring phenomenon. It shows up at the end of the two parts of the grammar of ascent, and that is a terribly important aspect of his thought. In the lessons that accompany these lectures, which will be found on our website, I will be going more into detail 
on some of these issues that we've touched on, and on others that simply I didn't have time to bring up in these presentations. So I'm aware of the fact that while I've tried to give some kind of unity to my presentation, it is selective, it is impressionistic, and so forth. And I can imagine someone giving quite different presentations of Kierkegaard and Newman. They'd be utterly false, of course. I'm being facetious, but this has been, perforce, a selective and impressionistic one. For all that, I hope useful and a good introduction if that is what this amounts to for you, into the thought of these two men, and a valuable reminder, if that's how it functions for you, of your previous reading and study of Kierkegaard and Newman. When we look at what influence the two men have had in subsequent time, they diverge considerably. Existentialism, as I mentioned, I think, popped up as a distinct and nameable movement after the Second World War, and under auspices that would make what was called existentialism very different from the thought of Kierkegaard. Some phenomenologists like Heidegger professed to find in writings of Kierkegaard analyses of subjectivity which could be wholly divorced from his interest in religion and so forth and be put to a more straightforward philosophical or metaphysical or ontological task. But the heart of Kierkegaard was not carried forward there, and certainly not in the case of Jean-Paul Sartre who in the mid-40s of the 20th century published a little work called Existentialism is a Humanism. Existentialism is a Humanism. And we can see influences on Sartre of Kierkegaard, but what overwhelms us is how Kierkegaard is read out of the group as far as what an existentialist was made. What Sartre suggests in that little essay is that the theist holds that man is a creature and that he has a nature and that when he acts or exists, his actions or existence should be the fulfillment, should be in conformity with that nature, so that there are guidelines for human action or existence which precede our choices. And it's our task as agents to find out what they are and to abide by them. Sartre himself was an atheist, and he was annoyed by those atheists who thought you could put God out of the picture and everything would be pretty much as it had been before. You put God out of the picture, human nature goes out of the picture as well. And that means that there are no guidelines for what I do. I'm totally and utterly free. Sartre summed up what he meant by the theistic view by saying, for the theist, essence precedes existence. For the existentialist, existence precedes essence and for the atheist. So to be an existentialist in this sense with the primacy on sort of untrammeled freedom is to be an atheist. Well, that, of course, leaves Kierkegaard out of the picture. It's hard to know how much we should blame earlier thinkers for the influence that they have on later thinkers, which in this case seems to be being influenced by everything but what was essential to the man, namely Kierkegaard. For all that, Kierkegaard has had a great influence on Protestant theology and of various kinds, and sometimes ways that are welcomed by Protestants and sometimes are not. But if there's something that comes through, I think, to everyone who reads Kierkegaard, it's the emphasis to use that scriptural passage, be ye not hearers of the word only, but doers also. It's that doing, that existence, that becoming a Christian that is the task of the believer. And Kierkegaard's great contribution, I think, to the body of believers is to keep our eyes focused on that. How about Newman and subsequent times? Well, Newman, like the Bible, I suppose, is invoked to prove just about any position you would want. One of the most startling things I ever read was a work on Newman and biblical criticism 
by someone who shall be nameless, and a chapter began, Newman like other liberals. Huh? Newman like other liberals. Knowing the appendix to the Apologia and his sustained critique of liberalism, that is an astonishing kind of statement. But it does suggest a way in which many dissonant Catholics after Vatican II would invoke Newman as if he were very much on their side in rejecting magisterial teaching or interpreting the documents of Vatican II in ways that were surprising to the authors of those particular documents. So there is a sense in which Newman's influence totally, I'm sure against his own bent, uh, has been with some people the invocation of him to espouse a kind of freelance Catholicism. And when you see the whole emphasis of Newman's life and thought, his desire to get it right, and that celebration of Keeble and the principle of authority, this just seems fantastic to invoke Newman in that way. Often what's invoked is on consulting the faithful in matters of religion, which is sometimes read as if it were some kind of resort to a pole in order to figure out what it is that we believe, certainly nothing, having nothing to do with what Newman said or believed. And then his letter to the Duke of Norfolk, in which he famously said that if he was asked to drink a toast to the Pope, he would drink first to his conscience and then to the Pope. And this was considered to be a kind of anti-papal state. No one can read the thing and put that kind of construction on it. I have elsewhere shown the Thomisticity of that particular remark of Cardinal Newman in the letter to the Duke of Norfolk. A passage or an essay of Newman's that I would like to draw attention to is the Tamworth Reading Room. And I would urge you to read that if you want to read a very humorous and polemical put-down of the kind of utilitarian notion that if you only had a library and people read, they would somehow become what they ought to be. This sort of silly equation of intellectual culture with being something more or less automatically as a result of knowing something. Huh? as if knowledge were virtue. That's one of the things that shows up as a condemned principle in Newman's discussion of liberalism. Finally, a passage that you'll find in the idea of the university called The Form of Infidelity of the Day, in which Newman contrasts the 19th century and the Middle Ages by saying, in the Middle Ages, things must have been tough because there you had heretics who were in the church, who were milling around with other believers and were undermining the faith by the positions that they held. In the 19th century, Newman says, we are in this happy position of having all of our foes outside the church arrayed against it, and things are much clearer than they were in the Middle Ages. It sometimes seemed to some of us that we live now in the worst of times because not only do we have foes outside the walls, but we have foes within the walls as well. I mentioned the sadness of Kierkegaard's end, and I have a picture of Kierkegaard's tombstone. You can see that his tomb in Copenhagen. We find Newman's instruction as to his own tombstone. He lived long enough to be able to think about matters like this, as did Hilaire Belloc, who spent much of his last decade writing epitaph to himself one of which I will give you. Belloc said, when I am gone, may it be said that his sins were as scarlet, but his books were red. Well, maybe if you and I live that long, we'll amuse ourselves. But Newman is not amusing. He's a serious man. But here is what he wants on his tombstone and what he got. Ioannis Henricus Newman, ex umbris et imaginibus in veritatem. 
and then a place for the date and requiescat in pace. That is, we might say, the theme of Newman's life. It is the motto on his grave, from shadows and images to the truth. And it is a trek that he took himself, that he has narrated for us in his own life. And reading him, pondering him, has helped many others make that same journey from shadows and images to the truth. It is a good description of our earthly life and the destiny to which ultimately we are called. And when we talk about religious thinkers like Kierkegaard and Newman, we chatter about this, we argue about this, we distinguish this and so forth. But it's well to think that what's animating them throughout is the sense of our vocation, our ultimate vocation of union with God and that the best way the best way to appraise and appreciate and profit from the reading of Kierkegaard and Newman is to see them as companions on that way who are urging and helping us along that particular path. So that if you go to Oxford and you go into Oriel Courtyard and you see there the bust of Newman and you'll see this motto underneath it, perhaps you will be struck as I have been and others, and as I have been struck when I had the privilege of going to Copenhagen and visiting Kierkegaard's grave, of sensing that here was a giant. These are giants that have gone before us on the path that we're all trotting, treading, walking, moving on, and their writings, their lives, are inspirations and helps to us. Perhaps a non-Kierkegaardian point, but nonetheless one that strikes one uh, in that cemetery in Copenhagen or, or uh, at Newman's grave. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.